You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read black books and they're talked about by a black author, and uh, you can read or watch or listen if you're black or not black, that's okay. Uh, This week on the podcast, we are going to be talking about Up From the Deep by, let me get the name here, Vaughn A. Jackson, and uh, I like to talk about how I came to these books, so What I was going to do after last week's episode, I was going to search for a book that was released this year, and as soon as I posted the episode, I found uh, that Richard Wright, uh, who's obviously been dead for some years now, released uh, a book this year, or his his estate released a book called The Man Who Lived Underground. So I was going to read that, and then two days before I was going to start reading that book, I was on Twitter. And Sean A. Cosby, S.A. Cosby, who's written uh, Blacktop Wasteland and a few other novels, um, he retweeted uh, a tweet by Vaughn A. Jackson saying that his novel Up From the Deep was out. And so I was thinking, I'd like to cover something like that. I mean, tons of people are going to be reading Richard Wright, but how many people are reading my man Vaughn A. Jackson? So I figured I would do that. So uh, I bought the novel, and I, I would show it to you, but I read it on my um, my pad, so I don't have anything to show you there. Okay, so um, how I'm going to break it down, I'm going to talk about, um, I'm going to talk about the plot, or I give a brief synopsis, talk about the plot a little bit, then I'm going to talk about the characters, and then after that, I'm going to talk about the writing, you know? And then we'll be done. So try to make this pretty quick. I like to do these in about 10 or 15 minutes. So, um, all right. So first of all, the synopsis, a very brief synopsis. You could really sum it up by just saying this is a kaiju novel, right? Von A. Jackson is a self-admitted monster fan, loves kaijus, was inspired to write these types of novels because uh, one of his parents, I don't remember which, introduced him to, uh, what is it? Godzilla when he was a kid. So this is a kaiju novel, and so the basic synopsis is uh, the novel starts out with a detective, um, Detective Raymond DeHaney. He's on a mission trying to take down a cabal with uh, a military unit. Him and a military unit are working together. DeHaney is part of Interpol, and um, in the process of taking down this cabal, they upset an oil rig, and that helps wake up a kaiju. And then from there, the story just takes off, and it's, you know, your basic kaiju story of the military or police or whatever you have, the armed forces trying to stop a kaiju, right? So that's the basic plot. Um, but it, what I liked about this novel's plot in particular, so with, you know, not going to go into particulars because there are like 50 different characters in the, in the novel and um, tons of different storylines. So we can't go through every single storyline that happens. But just what did I like about this plot? Very cinematic because the... the um, the scenes are constantly changing because there are so many characters and so many storylines. It's constantly changing and turning and churning. And there's new obstacles uh, coming out of nowhere, which means there's tons of action. And there's tons of inventive ways to overcome the obstacles that happen. Um, 
Some of the inventive ways that I really enjoyed were the tungsten steel. I don't want to like give anything away, but you know, how are we going to stop this kaiju? This uh, this giant monster. Um, how are we going to take it down? So there's the tungsten steel approach, giant staples, um, luring it into the desert. Which, if there were a spinoff novel that was all set in the desert, and it was like everybody in America had to flee to the desert in order to. Um, in order to take shelter from a kaiju, I would also read that. So if uh, Vaughn A. Jackson wants to write that sequel, I'm in. And uh, there's a giant microwaves. There's a bunch of different stuff. So I really liked that. And I thought that these inventive ways to overcome the obstacles in the novel really helped uh, move the story forward. And it, it did a second thing, which is that when you're reading a novel with, um, you know, it's like science adjacent, right? If you... If the, if the story's not moving quick enough, then you're going to sit there and think about like, well, does that really make sense? Could you really use tungsten steel to do that? But because this novel's moving so quickly, you don't get bogged down in the semantics of the science or anything like that. Unless you're a super type of nerd, which um, admittedly, I'm not that level of nerd. Uh, so I, I was uh, pleased and surprised by everything that took place in the novel. And uh, I thought the plot moved quick and was fun. Um and then there's just lots of over-the-top stuff as well in the novel. Tons of over-the-top stuff. But it's a kaiju book, right? It's when you watch Godzilla movies, they typically have completely ridiculous things. In the last movie, Godzilla vs. Kong, um, the fact that Kong is resuscitated by like Godzilla acting as like a makeshift defibrillator is pretty over-the-top. By far and away, my favorite over-the-top thing in this novel is the what I'll call the Ivan Cole saga. Um... So Ivan Cole is basically a mercenary that they try to reanimate, more or less. And I love that. I'll talk about that a little bit more later. And also, I don't want to give away any details. But um, yeah, so there's, <laughs> there's just a, a lot of fun going on in this book. It's inventive. It's fun. A lot of new obstacles. A lot of new ideas. So that was great. All right. Let's talk about the characters. Um, easily my favorite character in the entire novel is Brannigan. He's the... Uh, marine in the novel he's a mercenary's mercenary no, he's not a mercenary actually he's a marine he's a marine's marine he is the marine there are a lot of marines there's some naval officers there's a coast guard there's police officers there's tons of armed forces in this novel but brannigan is by and far by uh, by far the toughest roughest one of them all and it is a cliche to have a super soldier type guy it doesn't matter the cliche in this sense works uh, I loved Brannigan. I loved every tough guideline that he gave. I loved that he also, you know, going against that type a little bit, um, had a good dynamic with um, with the nerd character, one of the nerd characters, Devante. And that's pointed out, and I really liked that. So um, I thought Brannigan was fun and just a well-written character for something that easily could have been cli like cliche and boring. This was cliche and fun. Um, same thing with the detective mentioned at the top, my second favorite character, Detective Dehaney. He could have just been a boring detective, but in fact, um, I think he's named Raymond maybe as a nod to Raymond Chandler, whose famous detective is Philip Marlowe, the hard-boiled detective. And at one point in the novel, uh, somebody mentions the fact that Detective Dehaney is not like a hard-boiled detective. Um, he's way more thoughtful and caring. And yeah, that's true. And, um... At the beginning of the novel, in the first chapter, uh, Dehaney's doing some quips and I was thinking, am I really going to like this guy or is he going to be doing this smart aleck thing the entire novel? But he really 
endears himself to you as the novel goes on. Part of it is that he, he suffers an accident in the first chapter and that kind of humanizes him and also just like puts his quips in a different light. Um, but another part of it is that he's, uh, he's actually like a, a really a caring emotional character. He isn't a hard boiled detective. He's not running into rooms, getting sapped and, and spitting out one liners. That's not what he's doing. In fact, he really thinks about his responsibilities, uh, to society and he thinks about the fact that, um, you know, he's got a duty to uh, fulfill. And the other thing I like about Detective Dehaney is that it's it would be difficult to, um, or it can be difficult to paint a police officer in a positive light. So I think that the author did a couple of very smart things to achieve this. Number one, Dehaney is always referred to as detective. He's never officer Dehaney. He's always detective. Number two, as I mentioned at the top, Dehaney's not part of the American police force. He's uh, an agent of Interpol, so that helps. And number three, uh, early in the novel, Dehaney makes a um, a comment about how uh, he's with Devontae in a diner. On page 27, Dehaney makes this comment about the fact that uh, uh, we should be careful because I've been watching the news and, uh, you know, it shows that Dehaney's aware of the problems with the American police force, namely the, the extrajudicial murders of its citizens, uh, especially black men. So, um, yeah, I thought that was really smart on uh, on the author's part to flesh out this character and make him likable, a character that could, you know, just off the top. When I read a police character in a novel, I frequently don't like them. And uh, even if you're reading like a private detective novel, even if you have no prejudice against the police in real life, if you're just reading a private detective novel, usually the police are um, bureaucrats who are mucking up the work. So, uh, yeah, I thought that was I thought that was well done. All right, the third character that I liked uh, just quick, briefly is Jennifer McPherson. I thought she was very well drawn. Um, she could have been cliche as well. So it's really, I like these characters that, you know, they have to appear, right? You got to have the Marine, then have a detective, you got to have a general. General, very easy to make that character cliche, you know, um, tight-lipped iron lady, and she just gets the job done and doesn't, you know, hardest still, that kind of thing. That could have been the case, but that's not what happened. In fact, she felt human. You could see her frailty, but also strong. She dealt with multiple um, uh, crises. And um, yeah, so I just thought that was a really well-drawn character. Okay, but uh, like I said, there are like 50 or more characters in this book. So there's tons of little small characters coming in and out, and then they get lost into the, the froth, the foam, the constantly changing um, <laughs> uh, and um, the constantly changing and morphing plot that is this novel um but what i like about those minor characters is they have some really great interactions so i just want to cover a couple of those a couple of those interactions really quickly um so first of all you know, truman and arnett uh, arnett he comes in and out so he goes he makes his first appearance in the first uh quarter of the book but he comes back later truman does not um but they have a nice little exchange and they're really just two minor characters that have a nice exchange that basically Truman is like the old hand police officer and Arnett is the younger generation. And it's a good little contrast, good little dichotomy of like, Hey, this is two sides of America, right? Um, old, young, maybe different sides of the political spectrum. Maybe, maybe not. You don't want to read too much into it. Uh, so that was a really good one. Um, uh, Devontae and Skyler are two characters who have, uh, great chemistry throughout the novel. Um, they they have much bigger parts than um than Truman and Arnett, but uh, yeah, so that's a, they have a good connection, and 
The only thing I'll say is that Devante does deliver an all-time cringy line. I mean, he is a nerd character. Skylar's a nerd character, right? They're both helping uh, research the kaiju and trying to come up with ways to, to control it or maybe kill it or maybe see what they can do with it. Um, at any rate, Devante says, um, after, after successfully uh, writing some code for something, he says, call me Amazon Prime because I just delivered an all-time cringy line. Obviously, it's on purpose. It's meant to be cringy because Devante is a nerd. But even, even then, it was bad enough that I had to stop and highlight it. Um, yeah, so that was very, very cringy. All right. Uh, and then, uh, oh, also, like I said earlier, Devante and um, Brannigan have great banter, so that's good. And then probably my favorite small banter moment is between Curtis who's part of the uh, evil cabal that I mentioned at the top, and Dr. Felding, who's like a doctor henchman guy who works for this cabal. Felding only has one scene. And in this scene, what they're doing is they're trying to resuscitate Ivan Cole. And um, so they're, they're not resuscitating him. They're trying to reanimate him. They're trying to like bring him back from the brink of death and then maybe turn him into like a super soldier that can be controlled by remotes. Very good. Um, so, so it's Felding's idea. And so he asked for Curtis to just, you know, assist him in trying to reanimate this man. And, um, so this is their exchange. Curtis says, just tell me what I need to do. Felden pointed to a screen. That's his brain scan in real time. Whenever this image lights up red, hit the button to your left to flood his body with morphine. Hold it until the orange starts to dissipate. How much? Potentially all of it. He's likely to die from overdose, but if we don't manage his pain, he could die from that as well. The doctor shrugged. I could spend an entire day listing all the ways he could die, honestly. I love this. I thought it was a great, absurdist moment. Felt like, uh, I wrote in my notes that it felt like something like Crank 2, that would happen in Crank 2, but also it reminded me of Dr. Krieger in uh, Archer, and I thought it was just a really great, funny exchange um, between one major character and then one minor character who just has a very brief moment but knocks it up the park and then yeah so that's all connected to the ivan cole storyline which comes and goes in the book and it's just one of those storylines that like is there and it leaves kind of like truman who i mentioned earlier there's a lot of storylines happening so um yeah uh you uh as soon as you like one thing another thing happens and then another thing happens another thing happens the story really keeps moving over and over again uh, the last thing I'll say about these connections and this chemistry, the only one that I thought was, I wouldn't say lacking, but that could have been a bit stronger, was um, the connection between Curtis and Skylar. So I liked I liked their dynamic. I liked their dynamic. Um, but I thought that uh, Curtis's reason for being so infatuated with Skylar could have been stronger. And maybe Skylar's um, reason for being, you know, even the least bit attracted to Curtis could have been stronger. Um, but overall, I thought that all of the banter and chemistry between the characters was really well done. And another thing that felt very cinematic, in addition to the constantly shifting storylines and plot, um, the character's dialogue felt very cinematic. You know, you could, it's kaijus come from the screen. So you could very much imagine this being a film and um, a fun one. All right, so the last thing I wanted to talk about was the writing style itself, the prose in the novel. And I just wanted to highlight two different types of prose that happen. Um, the first is the pulp, right? So this is a, a, 
a kaiju story, a monster story, a genre story. And um, the first thing you got to have is good genre, uh, good pulpy prose. And I thought that was here. Um, a good example of it is with my man Brannigan, who's um, the Marine's Marine. And uh, he says the first thing. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me set the scene. It's Brannigan going down into a tunnel um, uh, to, to access Alcatraz. And, um, yeah, I don't want to give anything away about the plot. So he's just entering a tunnel to go into uh, to Alcatraz. And so here we go. The first thing Brannigan noticed was the smell. Like murky brine left to sit and stew in fetid pools of garbage beneath the brutal sun. Each breath was a fight not to vomit. I love it. Great sensory language. Strong prose. Um, you know, you can definitely imagine murky brine sitting in a stew in, in fetid pools of garbage beneath a brutal sun. You, you know what that smell is. Um, with summer approaching, I think we all know what that smell is. But no, so that, that was a great, a great example of that kind of uh, language in the book, which there is a lot of. Um, but there's also a different type of language going on. And I, I would say the best example of this language, a more flowery language, is what he does in the interludes. And uh, in particular, the interludes towards the end of the novel. Um, so he's got chapters, but he's also occasionally got an interlude. And it usually provides like um, um, a perspective of a character that we don't spend too much time with during the chapters. And actually, uh, towards the end of the novel, those interludes involve the monster or one of the monsters. There's not just one. Um, and so I thought the language in these is quite uh, flowery and... Um, and the fact that it's written from the monster's perspective is really cool. All right, so just I'm going to read a little passage here. This is from interlude number seven. Uh, the stone towers scream and fall as she rams through them in a headlong charge towards the water. Her eyes burn. Dust and debris sting in the creases and crevices around her eyes. She does not flinch or waver. She emerges on the shore. The water laps at the ground, beckoning. Tiny figures look up at her from the shore, and in the distance... Three gray creatures with tall necks drift lazily on the surface of the water. Uh, you know, the contrast of these two styles is, I think, uh, readily apparent. You know, in the first style, it's um, that pulpy tradition, a lot of uh, descriptive words that, you know, uh, elicit a smell, uh, a reaction. You can see it, you can smell it, right? Very sensory. And then the second one, no less sensory, but um, much lighter, uh, less descriptive language necessarily, and just um, puts you behind the eyes of the character, and that character's a monster. Um, so I thought that was really cool and uh, well done that he could switch up his styles. And then, like I said, a lot of the dialogue felt very much like a, like a film, so... Um, that was cool too. Um, so yeah, so uh, overall, this was a very fun read. Um, I was looking forward to reading a book about giant monsters. And uh, like the first movie I saw post-pandemic in the theaters was Godzilla vs. Kong. And so to me, that's always going to be a winning formula for when you want to be entertained, to go see giant monsters fighting. That's always going to be a winning formula. This is no different. If you want to be entertained and you want and you enjoy giant monster stories, you will enjoy this book. Um, at times, it can be difficult to keep track of everything that's going on because there are so many storylines and so many characters. But 
Uh, if you just get lost in each scene and enjoy each character and each moment that's happening, um, overall the story takes care of itself and you basically know what's happening. You get the gist. We're fighting a kaiju, right? We're fighting a kaiju. This thing didn't work, so now we got to go and do this thing, and that thing didn't work, so now we got to go and do that thing. So, um, overall, it was a fun read. Really enjoyed it, and uh, found it very entertaining. So, um, yeah, I would recommend picking this up if you're a fan of kaiju's monsters, or um, you know, entertainment in general. All right, that's gonna do it for this episode of the most dangerous thing in America podcast next week on the podcast, I'm going to read that Richard Wright novel, uh, the man who lived underground. So that will be happening next week. Um, and then, or in two weeks and yeah. So until then, um, stay safe, stay healthy, stay black and keep reading.